Our first guest for the first episode of the Ancient Wisdom Project podcast is Scott Young. He has recently published a book called Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. I wanted to interview him because I think many people, including myself, have tried to improve their skills with the hope that the next promotion or next job would make life meaningful. On this episode, I, of course, asked Scott about his ultra-learning approach, but I also asked him what role ultra-learning can play in generating meaning, how he has dealt with his own anxieties about his career in life, and how those anxieties have changed over time. I asked him about his experience with ancient wisdom traditions and what, if anything, we should get out of them. And finally, I asked Scott what advice he has for me as someone who feels a bit stuck, even though things are ostensibly going pretty well. I found his answers to these questions super interesting, and I think you will too. All right. Well, we have Scott Young here on the first episode of what I think I'm going to call the Ancient Wisdom Project podcast. Very original, I guess. Uh, well, Scott, thank you for coming on. Oh, yeah. Great to, great to be on the first episode, the inaugural episode. So uh, it's yeah, very exciting. And Scott and I were chatting a little bit, and I'm going to blame him if this is a big failure and no one likes it instead of instead of myself, because I didn't ultra learn how to do podcasts uh, <laughs> uh, before we started. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so first things first, you have your new book uh, that is called Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. That sounds pretty cool. And But first, I want to see, like, how... How did you get to this point where you published this book that's now, uh, I, I assume, sweeping the nation, uh, both or nations, both Canada and the U.S.? So, yeah, how did you get here? <laughs> well, I think there's 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 been a few people who have picked it up, but okay, um, yeah. Well, where do you, where do you want me to start? Do you want me to start with the book, or do you want me to start with the the idea of ultra learning? Well, okay, let's start with like who are I? I saw on your blog you you generously posted your age. You just turned thirty one. I, yeah. or recently okay yeah, i'm also 31 so that's great so oh, wow. we have, there uh, we go yeah we're contemporaries here yes um, yes okay peers. so how, true peers yeah so how did you become in like an expert in ultra linux i understand you it started kind of like right after college yeah well i don't know experts are a real funny word i always hate describing myself as an expert i prefer enthusiast i think there's less uh, expectation don't, don't be modest you got the you got the book out and <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, literally okay, wrote the okay. book on it all so. right I, I wrote the book i wrote about the book about this concept i coined yeah um uh very very useful strategy to become an expert on something is to create your own concept and then you're by default the expert on it so the idea yes. of this uh really um no it really happened when i was in university i was interested in kind of effective studying but within the context of doing well in school and I was motivated to you know how do you study efficiently and how do you you know get good grades without having to work as hard I was interested in that so I was already interested in learning but this idea of ultra learning is a little different that it's people who are taking on projects outside of the confines of the normal education system and often really rethinking some of the assumptions that you have about how you learn things to accomplish quite dramatic feats. And so the first real person that I met who I would qualify as an ultra learner was my good friend, Benny Lewis, who was not my good friend at the time when I met him, I just discovered him. And he now speaks probably about 10 plus languages. And he had this goal at the time of becoming fluent in three months. He wanted to go to a new country and learn as much as possible in as little as three months so that he could be fluent in that language. And so I document his story a little bit in my book, but this was the first real exposure that 
whoa, maybe the way that we've kind of been thinking about the right way of learning has some inefficiencies that you might be able to do it a bit better if you take it really seriously. And I think in language learning, this is clearly the case because for most of us, I mean, we spend, you know, all our high school years learning, let's say, French or Spanish, and we can't parler en français, like we can't do any of those things. And so there's clearly something going on wrong about our expectations about learning. And so I think Benny Lewis was one of those first examples, but I've actually met many more people since then that have really reinforced for me that this isn't just something that applies to you know, learning languages, but it applies to learning lots of things. And that if you can really understand how learning works at a fundamental level, you can often make decisions that can accelerate it over a normal pace. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, everything can be done lightning fast, but rather that a lot of the ways that we typically approach learning are either aimed at the wrong direction. So they're aimed in a direction where you are going to be making a lot of progress, but not necessarily in the way that you want to go or it involves a lot of dead ends and stalls and stagnations and plateaus so that if you can learn how to spot those and get past them, you will end up becoming more efficient just because the default approach tends to be pretty inefficient. Okay, so you got all that. Uh, heard about Benny, he became your friend. And you're like, wow, you learned all these languages super quick. Now, I know now you think that's what you picked up. You sure you just weren't trying to talk to girls in different languages as efficiently as possible? Well, you know what? I'm a real nerd. So I, although <laughs> I got to admit, I got to admit being able to talk to girls in different languages is, is obviously nice. But for me, when I, when I started with it, my real kind of interest in Benny was I was interested in learning French. And I was living in France at the time I was doing a year abroad. And I had this idea that I was going to come back speaking another language and I was struggling with it. Uh, a lot of the people around me were speaking to me in English all the time and I felt like I was practicing a lot but I wasn't making as much progress as I would like. And so I think it, yes, I think that there's often a lot of benefits people imagine to maybe learning multiple languages. I tend to think uh, getting girls is, is an overrated one. <laughs> that if, if your only goal was to uh, flirt with girls, uh, learning a bunch of other languages is like a super inefficient way of going about it. But yeah, you, if you, you are need to interested, go straight to the task, right? Yeah, well, I think, I think if you want to talk to women, you should talk to women. But I think okay. if you want to learn other languages, I think there's a lot of benefits because you get to see the world from a different perspective you get to see it from a different culture and i think that there are some fundamental limitations that make it a lot harder to do that in your native language that yes you can go to another country and talk to the people that speak in english or you can read a book through translation but you're going to be getting it filtered in through your own cultural worldview as opposed to seeing it how other people from that actual country actually see it and so for me i think that's always been the most exciting thing is just this sort of perspective broadening aspect of it Awesome. So do you, would you consider learning French to be your first ultra learning project? So I would say that it was not an ultra learning project. It was certainly an attempt uh, to learn something, but I think there were a lot of mistakes that I made uh, that made it a lot harder for me to learn French. So one of the biggest mistakes, and this is one of the ones that they don't, they don't tell you before you, you go off to learn a language, is that a lot of people think, okay, you go to another country, you're going to learn the language, right? That's what you have to do. You have to go there and you'll just learn the other language. And the thing you don't realize is that when you already speak English and you go to another country, in most circumstances, there's some exceptions, but in most circumstances, the people that you meet and you become friends with and you spend all your time with will speak 
English. They will not speak the language of the country you're learning, or if they do, they'll also speak English because you don't speak that language. And so the people who only speak that language, you can't communicate with, or at least you think that you can't communicate with them. And it's always easier to speak to people in your native language. And so you form what I call an English bubble or this group of people around you that speak in English. And that was certainly the case when I was in France. I had lots of friends that were other exchange students. So friends from England, friends from Germany, friends from, even friends from France who spoke English and they formed the vast majority of my friends. I only had a handful of friends that I I spoke in French with. So the vast majority of my time and my social reality was really in English, even though I was living in France. And so this, I think, becomes a very important factor if you eventually want to learn a language is that if you can adjust that, so you take a somewhat more difficult approach in the beginning of reinforcing a a sort of monolingual of the language you want to learn a monolingual environment early on then what happens is that all the people you meet speak to you in the language you want to learn so when i tried this again when i was learning spanish i was you know all the people i would meet would speak to me in spanish all of the friends i meet were having conversation in spanish even my roommate who i went with who obviously speaks english we decided we were only going to speak to each other in spanish and that actually made a huge difference for the amount of time you spend practicing and the amount that you actually learn for another language and and i mean this just applies to languages but i think that there is a general property of taking a somewhat harder path taking a somewhat more serious and dedicated path nonetheless reaching a more efficient and effective approach to learning so taking the key there i i took away is intensity uh and you weren't getting that from i guess your initial experience with friends diluting it with all these english speakers trying to talk to you and and vice versa so i think that yeah there's there's two things so one is just if you're only speaking in that language obviously you have a huge increase in the proportion of time you spend speaking the language so if we're talking about okay i'm going to go there and try to speak the language as much as possible maybe you speak like 10 percent of the time so as much as possible becomes 10 percent So that's a big difference from all the time. And then the other thing that I think is important is that when you are establishing social relationships, the language that you speak is a really big embedded part of that relationship. And so maybe you learn enough that you could start speaking in another language to this person, but because your friendship and your relationship with them is based on this other language, transitioning to a more difficult language has an enormous amount of friction. So most people don't like that. They don't like it when they are used to speaking to you when you're relatively articulate and they can communicate well to a point where you sound like you don't understand anything they're saying. And so that that shift, that abrupt shift, shift in expectations means that in the beginning, maybe you made a lot of friends that were in English, but later you want to be in a more immersive environment and it becomes really hard to change that without just getting completely new friends okay so you don't consider you know learning french to be the first ultra learning project because you said you made a few mistakes uh that prohibited uh that got in the way of it being an ultra learning project so was your first one uh the mi you call it the mit project yeah the mit challenge would probably be the first project that um that and again you know i'm like using this sort of self-made definition i think that it was the first project i did where it was like an intense project to learn something self-directed and it was you know that i was successful at that i was able to you know accomplish what i had set out for interesting and what was involved with the mit project for people right who haven't right. read your so, blog or book 
Yeah, so this challenge. project this project was one that I started in um, October of 2011, and the idea was that MIT posts a lot of their uh, classes online for free, uh, or parts of the materials from their classes, so lectures, assignments, solution keys, that kind of thing. Okay. And uh, around the time I was graduating from business school, I was thinking about going back to studying computer science and kind of weighing that decision in my mind. And I found some of these classes and it just, there was just this kind of moment where I was like, has anyone ever tried to do a degree before? Has anyone ever tried to like simulate an MIT education just using these resources? And I looked around and I, I didn't find anyone who'd ever tried to do that before. And I was, I was very interested also in what would you be able to do if you didn't have the kind of constraints that normal schools have? And I was at the time pretty sick and fed up of the normal kind of way that you were conducting school where, uh -huh. okay, these are when the lectures are and you have to submit this assignment, you get it back a week later and the exam's on this date. And I was just thinking if you just had total freedom to learn the material however you'd like and the only thing is that you had to pass the final exams and uh, later I added the programming projects as a requirement you know how how would you be able to do it maybe you could do it more effectively and so I decided to take on the 33 classes that um, roughly correspond to an MIT computer science undergraduate degree and I wanted to try to do this uh, instead of doing it over four years I wanted to try to do it in 12 months and so I started that project in uh, October of 2011, as I said, and uh, I did the last class in September of 2012. So I would say that it was uh, successful. Man, so you were just like, you know, I'm going to knock off three years of the MIT education and just compress this into one year. What, like... Uh, you talked about Benny Lewis and, and mm. learning, you know, all these languages in a very short period of time. Like what specifically about like the MIT program after your business school? Like was it just because I want I can be the first one to do this? Were you trying to build your business? Like what, what, what was the motivation? Like, Yeah. So there were multiple motivations. I think the first one was that I actually was considering going back to school to do computer science. It didn't seem very exciting or practical, but I was kind of interested in learning it. I kind of felt a little bit like, ah, I studied the wrong thing in school because I, I really left business school disliking <laughs> what I'd been, I kind of was like, ah, oh, this is BS. And, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit softer on it now, but I, I kind of left feeling like, ah, oh, this is BS. I should have learned like, you know, a harder, I mean like harder in the terms of hard sciences. Like I should have learned like a harder discipline where there's, you know, correct answers to things and there's not this like, you know, everyone speculating about business uh -huh. strategy and all that. I was just kind of sick of that. And I was thinking about going back. So that was sort of the first motivation. Although I don't know whether I would have pulled the trigger and actually gone back to school for a number of years because sure. that seemed also a little bit like, ugh. Um, but then at the same time, I was, again, interested in Benny Lewis. Benny Lewis was blogging and I really liked how he was doing these projects as like a mode of blogging. I thought that was really cool that, you know, he wasn't just, it wasn't just that he was taking on challenges, but he was sort of writing about it while he was doing that. And since I was also blogging at the time, that was that's something that was something that would appeal to me as well. That I was thinking, oh, I would like to do something like that. And then I think um, the fact that I didn't know of anyone who had done it before was really exciting. But I think it was exciting maybe for not the reason that, uh, not like a valid reason because. 
I think it's weird to say because right now, uh, I don't really know that many people who have done things that are very similar to this project. Uh, um, I know a couple people who have done sort of their own kind of self-education degree, but I don't know anyone who kind of really tried to match uh, uh, an actual curriculum like the MIT Challenge where they were actually trying to like you know, pair up all the classes. They were just sort of saying, okay, I'm going to do some MOOCs and and do something that roughly corresponds with it. And so um, at the time when I was starting it, my whole idea was that like, why aren't millions of people doing this? Like this, this, this is Uh the future. And because it was the future, I was thinking like, no, it isn't like I'm going to be the only one who does this. I'm like, I'm going to be the first person to do this. There's going to be lots of people to do it. And I want to be kind of in the, on the cutting room or like sort of on the, uh, what's the what's the right word in the beginning phases of this sort of revolution of education now uh, you know eight years later i don't think that that's happened and i think there's some interesting <laughs> reasons why people have not decided to uh take the mit challenge en masse but i think a lot of the same motivations i had for learning it are still true even if maybe trying to try to complete something that's very close to an existing degree isn't necessarily the best approach for everyone i do think that there's um there's lessons to be learned there about just the fact that that's something that's possible. I think even more so than just saying that you ought to go to school and or you ought to go and uh, try to complete some kind of facsimile of a degree. I think it's more just the idea that if you want to really understand something deeply, it's possible to do it this way. And I think that that was something that certainly before I had uh, tried some of this experiment, I would have been skeptical that I could have understood what was in a computer science degree without having some kind of, you know, tuition paid and classes attended in actual school. Yeah, it's, it it sounds like you kind of have the hubris of you you must have been what like 23 or something 24 yeah yeah. yeah. and where you go ah business I I think I had a very similar thoughts (laughs) at various times uh not that I'm that much different now but it's like "Ah, okay (laughs) what I did was stupid and I gotta do something super unique and you and you accomplishment you're kind of in the at that time the nascent stages of the kind of the blog blogging world and I imagine um around that time so it's yeah and i think it's sort of similar a little bit to your ancient wisdom project that it was a kind of um like it was also you know a way for me to not just be here's my thoughts on things like to actually to do something so you have something to talk about and i was writing about learning and studying at the time um and so doing a project just seemed like the perfect kind of companion activity to that because then when i'm talking about like how do you learn effectively or or my theories on productivity i was doing something alongside it and could reference it and talk so that was you know that was definitely a part of the motivation as well just because i was very interested in blogging as well Right, and it gave you the street cred, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, the street cred, the street cred of, of spending uh, spending your days uh, reading MIT computer yeah. science oh. books at home. Okay, that's, nerdy, that's the kind of street, street cred that I cred. want. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, <laughs> um, so okay, so that that's that was quite a yeah. you know while ago, maybe like six, yeah. uh, seven years ago, or maybe eight years ago. I can't do the MIT math here. The arithmetic. Eight, eight years ago. Eight yeah. years ago, and so you know, I've. I don't think I've discovered you till a few years ago. So you've like, but I've read through a lot of your website and, you know, you write about a, a whole bunch of stuff, um, you know, productivity, kind of life philosophy, um, 
it seems like somewhat random topic like humanity yeah, somewhat like random all, topics yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, you know and that's that's you know that's yeah. great for a blog so like what what were you doing between uh finishing the mit challenge and and publishing your book what what was the direction you were kind yeah, of yeah so the mit challenge kind of happened in around the time that i was going full-time as a blogger so i had been already when i was starting that project um like I was, you know, I had been blogging at, at that point, I had already been blogging for like five years, I think. And I was, uh, you know, I had a little um, study skills program that I was uh, running with some students and that was paying the bills and stuff. And so I kind of had a little bit of flexibility and freedom because you, I was going from, you know, studying full time to now just doing this thing that was originally like consuming my part time hours. That was now my full time right. job. So I had like the most flexibility in my schedule and I was starting that. And so after the MIT challenge finished, though, I think that was the first project that kind of um, I think it was a it was a bit of a turning point for me with the writing career just because all of a sudden I had like something that made me different from every other person who has an opinion. And um, so that project got picked up a little bit. It got, mm -hmm. you know, I did a TEDx talk and I was able to get a little bit of interest in some of my other writing about productivity and learning then. And um, right after I finished it, I was just so excited about the kind of the opportunity and the potential that I was already kind of like planning the next project. And it had to do with learning languages because of course. I was thinking about that, you know, that first experience of, of learning French. And I was also my roommate at the time that he was planning on taking a year off to travel already. So we were kind of talking about traveling together to like, you know, oh, well, if you're going to go travel, maybe I'll travel too. And so we were talking about that at the time. Um, but we didn't like it, it, it was sort of a conversation that happened over many times that it sort of crystallized like, well, you know, maybe I'll do some kind of learning project as well. And then we started talking about language learning. And then I kind of was sharing sort of my private belief that like, if you did it the right way, like if you didn't do what I did in France, that you could um, achieve a lot more. And then this led to a project that we called the year without English. And so we went to Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea to learn Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese, and Korean. And the idea was that when we would land in each country, we wouldn't speak in English to each other or to people that we would meet. So essentially trying to approach this kind of immersion as close as possible to try to avoid the issues that I had with the English bubble when I was in France. And you document this on your site as, as well as uh, a bit in your book. So mm -hmm. was it worth it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, honestly, like, uh, it's funny funny you say that because I, I was thinking about it this way the other day that, like, I'm very happy about the progress that we made in the languages that we learned and, and you know, obviously being able to speak uh, multiple languages is a is a nice uh, takeaway from that. But if I could go back and let's say there was, you know, a condition of doing that project was that there was like an amnesia pill so that after the project was done, I just lost the ability to speak any of those languages that I learned immediately after it was done. <laughs> I would still go back and do the project because for me, that was such a life altering uh, year of not just not just the act of like traveling and going to new places, but the immersion I felt 
pulled us into different cultures and different places that are just so far outside of what I had experienced before. And so, you know, the experiences that I've had in that year, I think it was so condensed in terms of like, you know, you know, they talk about like your biographical memories and that there's moments in your life that seem stretched out or there's moments where there's a lot of routine and, you know, several years compress into just like, yeah, and then I was working at that job and then the next thing happened. This was sort of that stretching moment that like every single, you know, moment that happened in that year, I remember with a lot more vividness than a lot of other moments, um, I would say in my kind of routine life. And so I think that's uh, in and of itself was just such a valuable experience, even beyond, you know, being able to learn uh, some of these languages. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I remember uh, after I had uh, failed at my first like lifestyle design business inspired by Tim Ferriss uh, mm. or around that time I read the, I read the book I was trying to start uh, a travel uh, business called Trek deck where I'd have mm-hmm. all these uh, I actually made them I had these playing cards where they'd be like different travel challenges with the idea being that uh, it would you wouldn't just follow a guidebook you would uh, do a challenge like get on some kind of public transportation get off at a random stop or something mm-hmm. like that um, with the idea being that you would kind of open yourself up to experiences that you would otherwise might not have just fallen the normal touristy things and it sounds like the la- not speaking english deliberately and only speaking the language of that country did the same had uh, had the same effect for you was there any do you have any specific you know funny super meaningful stories in in china korea or, or wherever oh, yeah, that you so enjoy? many i've got yeah. oh i've got lots of i've got lots of good ones uh yeah. one so my friend when in addition to doing this kind of like language learning project he was really interested in like videography and particularly he was really interested in doing time lapses uh, and nowadays the technology's gotten so good that like anyone can do like really nice moving time lapses with like sure. a GoPro or with an iPhone. But at the time he had like a DSLR camera and it involved like setting up the camera, taking a picture, setting up a camera and moving it each time. And I remember we were in Kunming, China and he decides he wants to do this circular one. So he wants to like go on a circular arc in this central part of the square and just, he's gonna move it and it's gonna take a couple hours and he's gonna just move it every minute and take a picture and it's gonna rotate. Uh, turned out the video for that one didn't turn out that great, but, but he decides that he needs to have this circular track kind of like placed out. And so what he's gonna do is he's gonna tie a rope to one of my legs and he's, it's about like 20 foot rope and then he's just gonna walk in like, like use me like a compass right and he's gonna walk around and with a little piece of chalk he's just gonna mark on the ground so that he knows where to move his tripod when he's taking this thing now so this is Kunming China we're not even talking about like Beijing or Shanghai so there are no Westerners there there's like Uh I I think there, there are some but I mean very very few so already like even in this part of China it would be like walking around occasionally someone wants to like take a picture with you just because you know they've never seen a Westerner before they, they find it kind of intriguing and so with my, my friend is um, is from India so if, if this you know white guy and this guy from India are doing something weird in this center of the square where they're moving around this circle <laughs> with this chalk and it was like all of Kunming decided oh the foreigners are going to put on a show for us <laughs> and so and so he's doing this circle and I, I swear to god it was only about like 30 or 40 seconds 
He's doing this circle and all of a sudden this crowd just starts forming like in the boundary he's setting and they're just they're just like waiting. They're like we're going to do something something crazy like we'll see what they're going to do. And so they just start all piling up around us and um and then the cops come. And so then there's the Kunming police yelling at us like like we can't be doing what we're doing and I'm trying to speak to the person in Chinese to just be like no 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 we're not like we're not busking we're not doing this kind of thing and uh, that's just like just just stop just stop just stop like just stop doing it and so we just left it but he had made enough of the chalk on the thing that he could go around and do it after so i went and i sat down and everyone was like ah they're, they're not doing anything and so we went and sat down and then the crowd disbanded and then he went and got his tripod and took his pictures but uh but yeah i remember that one because i was in the middle of it being like that hurry up man <laughs> the cops up, are after us yeah you pumped up this whole crowd only to be only to let them down with you know your, yeah yeah let your, down with just some guy with a tripod taking pictures that yeah. was like, well, that sounds yeah. excellent. I, I I hope you were saying. Sounds like you you successfully communicated with the police that you weren't weren't doing anything crazy. No, no. Well, uh, that one was. <laughs> yeah, I think like uh, that one. The, there was just like the attempt at like we're not doing what we think you're doing, but it was just uh, yeah. That was a little bit humorous. It sounds yeah. That sounds like an awesome year, and it, it, you're adopting the ultra learning principles you outline in your book. I, I want to go in a little bit different direction because I, I think sure. people can read the book and like you know learn about the principles. Um, I I'm, I'm, have the outline in front of me, so there's things like pl- uh, meta learning or planning out what you're what you're going to do, focus, drill, retrieval, um, mm-hmm. etc. But I I guess I want to know like who is ultra learning for? I, I I'm going to quote something you wrote in the book he says your deepest moments of happiness don't come from doing easy things they come from realizing your potential and overcoming your own limiting beliefs about yourself ultra learning offers a path to master those things that will bring you deep satisfaction and self-confidence now you wrote that there's there's other things you cite about career and and things that Mm -hmm. are you know people can obviously see the benefits of being able to learn something real quick how much like of this other stuff like this deep meaningfulness and happiness do you think is is possible with ultra learning or is that like is it can someone go to say hey i want to generate meaningfulness and choose ultra learning as a method of doing that is that a viable um route i think so i think the way i would put it is this way that when we're talking about meaning and what things uh like, well, we, I just, just finished talking about this year long uh, experience of mine and how just that year, even if I didn't have any skills that I took away with it would have been, you know, just such a, you know, it's going to be one of the most memorable years of my life. I think no matter what I do uh, from, from this moment forward, it's going right. to be up there. And I think that's true of a lot of skills. I think even, you know, the MIT challenge, even though I didn't travel around the world, it was still an extremely memorable and vivid part of my life. And not because it was a grind or something, but because I had this feeling of I'm learning a lot of new things and I'm expanding what I know. And so I think it's a little bit hard to to talk about meaning, I think, devoid of having these sorts of experiences that move you outside of routine. I think that the, mm-hmm. the mind is sort of something that routine and what is known and what is commonplace just kind of fades out of existence that you don't really pay attention to it. And so I think 
when we have a feeling that something is really significant and meaningful, it usually means that we're really paying attention to it. And that often is involving the same kind of processes that are involved with learning. And so for me, I think a recipe for meaning is picking something that you're very um, enthusiastic about and you're very excited about and really pushing yourself. Because I think when you go places that you weren't expecting to go, that is that that kind of like that that pattern matching where it, it does something breaks your version of what you were expecting to happen. You're not sure what's going to happen. That I think is a big part of, um, that's a big part of what, what it means to think of something as being meaningful. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Says. So there's this, this element of that almost comes with ultra learning, which is, you know, a certain amount of novelty, difficulty, and maybe some, you know, tangible benefits, you know, practical benefits at the end. Um, do you think everyone can benefit, or let me rephrase it, do you think ultra learning is is worth it for everyone? Like, should everyone buy your your book and go like... <laughs> yes, yes, okay. deal. everyone should buy my book. Well, okay, don't don't yeah. even think about it. I'm right? going to no, edit, edit out this promo no, no, no. part. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I'm what I'm going to say, yeah. what I'm going to say about this is that yeah. there's kind of two layers that we can talk about it. So one is this sort of idea of these sort of full-blown kind of epic quest type ultra learning projects. Mm-hmm. And I talk about it a lot in the book. And I'm using them more as kind of a... They're kind of like a guiding example. So I know that most people, when I talk about the year without English, are not going to do a similar project. They're, sure. they're, they want to maybe learn a language, but they're not going to do that. Or you want to learn programming, but you're not going to do the MIT challenge. Or you want to learn public speaking, and you're not going to be like my friend Tristan, who was doing you know seven or eight speeches a week and you know doing this really intensive project to become the best at it. This isn't to say that everyone needs to pursue... Uh, learning in that particular way. But rather, I think that these examples can often illustrate principles. And I think the principles are universal. So the way I would put it is that if you read about some of these stories and you think that doing that kind of project with that kind of obsession and intensity is something that really excites you, then it would excite me too. Because that is what I'm hoping is that this this book will be for you know that minority of people reading it that it will be that triggering point for their own project that will become that memorable year of their life that will be that time where they, you know, change their career or where they learn those languages or where they did something that they didn't think was possible for them. And so that's not going to be most people. Maybe it's not even going to be 1% of the people that read the book, but I think that that's such a deep experience that I want some of those people to have it. And at the same time, I think if you understand the principles, then the principles I think allow you to approach how you think and learn in more modest ways that I think are still really beneficial. So if we look at principles like directness, this is something that's, yeah, it, it maybe you can take this to an extreme, but even if you're not taking to the extreme, the idea that what we learn tends to stay welded to specific situations and contexts is still enormously useful just from the perspective of, you know, you're going to read a business book or you're going to attend a class and you want that class to actually matter. You want that book you read to actually right. have some impact on your life. And so I think in these situations, uh, even if you are don't feel like you are ready or in a position to take on a huge ambitious project, you can still look at these principles and make tweaks to the things that you're doing in your own life to get a kind of a more modest improvement. And so I think that's probably what I would intend the benefit to be for most people reading it. Although, of course, I'm not holding out. I'm still holding out hope that there's going to be some people who are going to take on some really exciting projects that are going to make my right. projects look uh, not very interesting by the end of it. 
They're just going to do the MIT uh, computer science degree in like three months instead of uh, yeah, 12 yeah. months. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I like that idea that you, so you take, you know, the people you cite in your book, chess masters, you know, speakers uh, and uh, great mathematicians. They, these are kind of, you know, people on the extreme end, but you can learn a lot from the extreme and you don't have to do something to that level to gain some kind of mm-hmm. uh, benefit from it. One of, the, so you write about a lot of, a lot of stuff uh, on your blog, a lot of different types of advice. And one of the things that I, um, so I'll, I'll say on my own project, I like kind of blame Tim Ferriss for all my problems, like <laughs> as, as the, as the conceit. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of exaggerate. It's not really, really his fault, but the four hour work week was, you know, I think came out kind of around the time of the, 2007 2008 recession yeah so you know people either were stuck in shitty jobs or if if they had a job Mm. and they kind of found this like very compelling vision of the life uh you you know you can live and you know at the time you could you know he provided examples of these internet businesses where you don't really have to create anything unique you could just you know basically do a little bit of marketing and collect a bunch of books and you know i made it sound really easy which i think is one of the know mistakes uh interpretation there but um in retrospect it seems like i was kind of taking that to like and kind of going down that path is like trying to uh, to try to solve some like deeper i want to say i don't want to be super conceited like spiritual or ego or whatever self-actualization problems when really what i should have taken away is much more limited like yeah there's these productivity things you can do and you don't have to have a job like you can do these other businesses or even just the idea of entrepreneurship like i think if you limit it to that it's it's great have you found that your own readers have maybe taken you know things you said to an extreme or like taken things out of out oh of certainly yeah. you know um i have uh i have some readers um you know it, it, for me because i've been writing for so long i kind of see people go through phases where they'll like really like my writing for a little while and then you know they'll be emailing me like you know every single article they'll comment on it and it'll usually last like maybe maybe for some people it'll last like a few months maybe for some people a few years and then it's not usually people aren't like you know raging at me later of like scott you ruined my life it's more just <laughs> that they've they've got what they wanted from me and maybe they've moved on or maybe they've gone to something else or maybe they've realized kind of the limitations of my own perspective i mean like i'm just a human being right like i'm not some yeah. godlike body of wisdom I, I i know some things and i have some strong opinions and i'm probably wrong about lots of stuff too so i think um i think that for what you're saying is is absolutely right though that a lot of people approach um they approach self-improvement and they approach a lot of these ideas to kind of fill a deeper and vaguer angst vaguer i don't know more vague (laughs) angst that they have about life and so you know i see this in a lot of self-improvement movements including self-improvement movements that don't really call themselves self-improvement movements so like we're talking about tim ferris but i mean uh the rationalist community the kind of community of people that want to like think better mm-hmm. you know i think there is there's a lot of great stuff in there but i think there's also a lot of people who they're using this to cope with the you know the inherent difficulties of knowing what the right answer is in life for lots of things and so if they just have this mechanical procedure that will tell them what the right answer is in all situations that's very exciting and so 
I think, uh, you know, I'm a really big fan of uh, David Chapman and his uh, work with meaningness and his ideas that the, the basic sort of dilemma of life is that life has structure and it has systems and it has rules that we can observe. But at the same time, it has nebulosity, it has vagueness, it has things that are kind of ambiguous and not really clear or mm-hmm. not situations where there's one right answer, one right perspective. And it's the it's the combination of both that I think really is very confusing and very dissatisfying for a lot of people because on the one hand, we discover some rules and some patterns and we get really excited about it. And then we realize that they only have sort of, they have these fuzzy boundaries where they, you know, they don't apply as much anymore. And a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve in life is that we're trying to find the one answer that will, you know, guide us in all our life for all eternity. And the fact that that answer doesn't really exist um, is is kind of a, a constant struggle for a lot of people. <laughs> Not for me. I have it figured out. So stay mm. tuned for the next blog post where I yeah get ready for answer. that 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 course just yeah. is, it's coming out I'm ready for it Dale I'm ready for it yeah for you know 400 bucks ancient wisdom so. yeah exactly yeah uh, I like it yeah I I like yeah, this is what I like about your your writing it's so you know and you clearly thought about so many different topics and so I don't know I'm not too familiar with David David Chapman um, mm-hmm. but what I do want to ask you, you talk, you know, you said he's okay. We have to deal with both structure and ambiguity. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I got the sense from reading, you know, your selection of your blog posts over time. There have definitely, and just being human, I would imagine there have definitely been times where you felt some sort of ambiguity about oh, what yeah. you're, what you're doing and what you, you know, like it's, it's hard to get from, you're a successful guy, obviously, mm-hmm. and you, you now have a book. And like it, it, one could say a lot of these um, bloggers can seem like very successful on the surface, but you never really get a look at like what their inner monologue is, except for maybe what I can kind of maybe read between the lines of some of your posts when you're having a down day or what, whatever. But like, yeah. what, what are what are some of the things that like? sucked for you i'm sure as you were trying to build this mm-hmm. business and i know you wrote about your friends passing you by at some points um but like what but that was yeah that was frustrating for sure like i think that's one of the challenges i think as well is that people read too much they extrapolate too much so like my blog is just a collection of my ideas about things you know right. i kind of I kind of assume people imagine that I have a private life where, you know, I'm sad and I'm frustrated and I'm anxious and I'm like an every other human being on the planet. But it seems to me that, again, and I think it's related to this idea that there's some hope people have that, oh, this person, they have it all figured out and they've got all the right answers. And so if I just follow this person. And so I, I kind of, I don't like it when people do that to me and I try to avoid doing it to other people. But I think some of that, uh, and I think there are people who prey on that, people who try to project that image so that they can collect those people who are looking for the answer and they really try to portray that sort of confidence about themselves. Sure. But I think at the other time, there's there's just so much demand for it that sometimes people have these expectations. And so, you know, writing a book about learning and, and you know, I'm happy about the projects I've done, but sometimes I'll have people say like, oh, so could you like, you know, learn this in like 10 seconds or something? And it's like, I was like no, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm very careful about like picking projects that, you know, I, I think I can accomplish and I have some reason to think that maybe this is a more effective like I mean I don't know what else you want from me when I'm talking about these things and so I think that's true of life as well that you can see someone is really successful 
And, um, you know, I think I don't really feel like it's, um, you know, I, I don't really take the opposite tack. There's sort of kind of an authenticity movement where, you know, I have to like cry on camera every week just so that you know that I'm a real person. I, I kind of sure. take for granted that people know that I sometimes have shitty days and uh -huh. sometimes I have anxieties and I have lots of times where I'm thinking, well, what does it all mean? You know? Um, so I think for me, I, I, I prefer when I can kind of communicate that sort of balance that, you know, these are my ideas and I like to share the nice moments in my life but you know you can just assume that there's there's also things that aren't working out as well and so for me in my journey of doing this I think that um, my really my really my early struggles with blogging and doing this is that I knew that I kind of wanted to go in a direction of being able to you know kind of like you were where you, you want to have a sort of online business and you want to do that kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. and there was a lot of difficulty in getting started with that so I, I kind of I Tim Ferriss was not my sort of starting point I kind of by the time his book had hit the shelves I'd kind of been already on that path for maybe like three or four years so for okay. me when I was reading the book it was kind of like oh yeah all right that's one way of doing it I guess and um, and so when I got started, it was with uh, Steve Pavlina because he was actually running like an independent games business. Right. And so for me, it wasn't even really about, you know, personal development or this kind of thing in the beginning. It was just the idea of running your own business. And I was really interested in this. And I think that was a sparking point for me to get interested in all sorts of other things like productivity and goal setting and stuff just because you know, when you are faced with this goal that you're not sure whether you can achieve that, that you nonetheless find really, really inspiring, you sometimes try to marshal all those resources and you get interested in all that stuff. And so I started with it and uh, it was difficult in the beginning. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I think, um, I remember my kind of worst moment was actually around the time I was in France because I um, I had written this book, Learn More, Study Less, and it had had some success, not enough success for me to like pay, you know, to like live off of, which at, at the time was not even that much money. Like I was thinking live you, off of was like if I could Were you not in Vietnam make... or something? No, <laughs> well, I was, yeah. Well, live off of for me was like if I could make 20 grand a year, like okay. that was like, that was at my, at that point. Now I'm like, I'm not at that point now, but at that point, that was like success for me as if I could make 20 grand a year. And I, I didn't reach that point, but I, when I published that book, I could kind of like see the inflection point. It was kind of like, oh, all I need to do is just keep doing this and I'll reach that very minimal standard of living that I could do this when I graduate. And I decided I was going to follow it up with this book, which I, I gave like a really stupid name. I called it uh, Think Outside the Cubicle because I was trying to be too clever. And uh, what it was really about was about productivity for like students and people who work from home. The basic idea, because I was going to argue from the book that the whole 40 hour work week is not the most effective way to set up your time and schedule and it's so four. i couldn't be our hour work week so. yeah yeah <laughs> but but i think the title obviously makes people think this is about how to quit your job which it wasn't about and it also is kind of a terrible title generally <laughs> and and so i made this book and i really worked on it and i still think it's a i still believe in the content i still think that the content was pretty good for that ebook and i was gonna sell it and i think i sold like it was just some ridiculously low amount of copies like 10 or something like that and i remember just being crushed because i spent months working on this and i was like well this was supposed to be my inflection point this was supposed to be me you know having my own business and viably doing this for a living and instead it was doing much worse than the thing that was like supposed to be yeah. the precursor 
And so I remember feeling really down at the time. And it was a kind of sense of like, have I just been like wasting the last seven years pursuing this thing that like is just not going to happen? And I mean, at the time too, uh, you know, the idea that you want to be a blogger professionally is just like, that's dumb. Like that's not a real career. Right. Uh -huh. And so everyone around you is also sort of, you know, yeah, this, this isn't going to work. Right. And so I, I remember feeling really uh, disappointed and I was kind of like, uh, you know, like, what am I going to do? I still wanted to be an entrepreneur. I still wanted to like work for myself, but you know, this didn't seem like it was working and I've, you know, how long do you have to put in at something before you just call it quits? Right. And, and we're talking about like for the blog itself, probably that was about maybe like four years maybe. And, and in terms of my total amount of time pursuing this and related kind of projects, maybe like seven years, no, yeah. maybe like five years, five years at that time, five or six years. And so I'm feeling this kind of weight of, uh, oh, what am I doing right now? And the funny thing is, is I just made a decision that was really simple at the time, which was, you know what? I don't really have any better ideas right now. So let's just keep doing this until I graduate, which was going to be about another year or so. And so I figured, you know what? We'll, we'll graduate. And then after I graduate, I can get a job or I can, you know, go do something and, you know, maybe think of a new idea for a business and start from scratch. And so I kind of like counseled myself of that recent failure of just like, well, let's just keep going because why not? for right okay. now and the funny thing was is that that was sort of you know a couple months after that was when I started this uh, program called learning on series which was a kind of a, a subscription thing where I sent people like studying tips and tactics every month uh, for I know it wasn't that much it was people paying like I think it was like $14 a month or something like that and uh, that turned out to be pretty popular and it turned out to be enough for me to pay my bills and to be the thing that you know I could live off of and so to me, I think, um, you know, it's really funny because at that moment, if I had just decided instead of waiting another year, you know what, let's just 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 stop right now, uh, it would have been a very different story. So I don't know. I think that there's lots of little moments like that in your life where you're you're struggling and you kind of interpret it one way. And, and maybe that's true and maybe it's not. Uh, I imagine, you know, as you're building out your your business uh mm -hmm. over time maybe you, you have similar experiences have you noticed the anxieties you have have the types of anxieties you have have changed or they've been fairly similar so you know um the, the you know what i would say a big change of anxiety so like when i'm thinking back to that moment there's the anxiety that comes from the uncertainty of will I make it? Like, will I be able to make a go of this thing that I want to do? And I don't think that's true of all people and all anxieties, but I can, you know, I can relate that to relationships too. You know, when I was single, there was this kind of anxiety of like, will I, you know, either at the time, if I'm, you know, younger, I'm like, well, you know, will I get a girlfriend or will it be, you know, when I'm a bit older, will I be able to find that partner that I want to spend my life with? And so there's this kind of uncertainty about the future. And then I would say that once you have achieved success or once you have achieved some level of like, you know, this is what you wanted, then there can often be an anxiety about keeping that and maintaining that. So I definitely feel like in my business trajectory, um, I definitely feel more pressure now to uh, be able to sustain the things that I've done. And that also is, you know, does it has its own challenges. And so when I talk to my peers who I think are in similar stations, I, I kind of see the same thing that often it goes from an anxiety to 
um, you know, about what is possible, then there's an anxiety of to like, once you've gotten something, how do you make sure you don't lose it? And, you know, obviously in business and things like that, there's a lot of volatility. So that can also create some pressure and stress and stuff because, you know, if you, you were making some money and then now you're not, and now you have contractors and people who depend on you and you've built yourself up in this way that, um, you know, you want to make sure you keep doing it. I think that can also create some pressure and stress. Yeah. So yeah, nothing to lose and worrying about making it versus now you have stuff to lose and worrying about losing it. I think, I think anxiety is pretty central to the human condition. I think that there's definitely things you can do to diminish it, but I think also recognizing that that's sort of how we're hardwired in some ways is, has been at least helpful for me. Um, because I think there is a certain sense that people might have that, uh, you know, oh, well, there's this group of people out there they're, you know, perfectly happy and everything's good all the time. And, you know, if I could just be like one of those people, then my life would be perfect. And then, you know, you maybe even reach that stature and you realize that actually a lot of the psychological things that you dealt with and found unpleasant before are still there and, and that you don't change at some of these fundamental levels, even if your life changes uh, in a lot of other ways for the positive. I don't know. Those Instagram influencers seem like they got it together. So I got to say, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You wrote a you wrote a post. Um, mm-hmm. I forget when it was. It says it's titled "Can Life Have Too Much Meaning?" What meaning? What was, yeah. Meaning? What was? Well, like a year ago, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's going on through your through your head? That that's the kind of post I would write if I'm I'm you know feeling like uh, I'm a little. Um, I don't know what the trigger for that point was, but I think it was. Again, usually I write posts almost backwards that I start with how the, I start with the point I want to make, but I can't start there in the article. So I usually start with, I, I I gotta be honest, this is like revealing my inner nerdiness, but like when I start with posts, I usually start with like this super abstract idea that I find kind of intellectually satisfying. Uh And then it's like, okay, how do I get other people to give a shit about it is like most of my writing process. (laughs) So for this idea, I think it was just recognizing that meaning is usually seen as this like quantity that you want more of in life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think I, I kind of recognize that, uh, that I think that when people are anxious or when people are, have some of these strong negative moments, it's because of the meanings they ascribe to it, that we kind of all recognize that a meaningless life is kind of empty, but at the same time, uh, a life that has just, you have a lot of strong fixed meanings that force your thinking in a certain direction can also be itself quite anxious and unpleasant because sometimes if you get the right combination of meanings that work for your situation in life right now, it can propel you forward and it can give you this sort of clear motivation and path, but sometimes it can straightjacket you and you can realize that, well, with all the things I ascribe to this situation, there's actually no escape and, you know, everything's bad and I have to, you know, feel negative about it. And I think I was linking it as well because uh, of my own interest in like meditation and Vipassana and things like you know, Buddhist philosophy and things like Zen and stuff and how these seem to be kind of anti-meaning philosophies in some ways that mm-hmm. they're sort of what they're seeking is kind of to dissolve some of the meanings that maybe you associate with things. And so I do find that interesting because a lot of, I would say, classic uh, Western self-improvement seems oriented towards getting more purpose, having more meaning, having more commitment, having more drive, having more ambition in that direction. And I think there's been a little bit of a renaissance of a little bit more of a softer kind of anti-anxiety approach. And you can see this with this lens of like trying to either 
dissolve some of your meanings or, or maybe downplay them a little bit so that they don't cause you so much mental trauma. <laughs> yeah, I. this is a good segue into all the ancient wisdom stuff. I, I think in my own kind of exploration of, mm-hmm. you know, more Western Abrahamic religions or Western philosophy, there's definitely a sense of, you know, things are important. You should strive for things that are important in this life or the next, you know, um, with guidelines on how to do that. And Mm -hmm. the Eastern stuff, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of um, the idea being that it seems like the central idea is that, like you said, meaning is kind of generate your head. You're kind of creating all these little narratives out of, you know, about yourself, about what's going on around you. And the central goal is to recognize that it's just your mind or whatever your brain is doing that. And the goal is trying mm-hmm. to get away from that. And it's, you know, for me, especially when I'm, I kind of use it as a, I don't know, maybe it's like a self, self-therapy, self-medicating thing where it's like, oh, I haven't, I haven't accomplished all the strong Western goals I, I need to accomplish. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a Buddhist temporarily or, you know, I follow Hinduism <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. But so what, what made you get into, you know, kind of looking into, you write about Taoism, especially uh, Taoism, yeah. but uh, like what, what prompted your exploration? I know you wrote a post kind of ex- comparing ancient wisdom versus, you know, more modern sources, but like what, before that, what prompted your, your interest in it? Yeah. So I think, um, for me and i can i can remember being i think about probably like early on in this sort of process of self-improvement and stuff i remember encountering some buddhist ideas and i remember even reading like the Tao Te Ching and and these kinds of things and i remember just it just didn't have that resonant wavelength so it's just it's funny how like ideas and people and topics and things like this you know, if it's not the right frequency where you're vibrating right there, you'll just kind of ignore it. Because I remember mm-hmm. reading it and thinking like, oh yeah, this is cool. But not, it didn't make any like, it, it didn't it didn't shake up my beliefs about ambition. It didn't shake up my beliefs about any of those things because those were already kind of vibrating pretty strongly. And it was sort of, that was working for me at the time, that kind of, that that motive force for, for improving my life. And I think um, both my friend and I, this was happening sort of a little bit after we came back from the trip. So not right after. And I think for my friend, it was, he was sort of pursuing architecture. And I think he was having some doubts about his career trajectory and all the things that he had decided his life was going to be about. He was starting to have some doubts about that. And so he was really getting into it and we were having conversations about it. And I think for me, I was having some vacuum of having achieved a lot of my goals. And then, you know, like you said, you know, what, what next? What do you do after you've kind of done the things that you wanted to do? And so uh, I think that was sort of a starting point for me was kind of recognizing as well um, some of my own anxieties and some of my own like all that pent up sort of energy that had kind of come from working hard towards things. And then when you're not sure where to apply that energy, it can sometimes be a little bit frustrated where you feel a little bit lost. And um, I think that uh I think that when I was starting in that kind of approach, I was very interested in also some of the some of the philosophy and maybe some of the kind of phenomenology around like Buddhism and some of these Eastern ideas of, of ideas of like, 
you know, is there kind of an altered state of consciousness where maybe you don't have the same kind of anxieties or the same kinds of perceptions as you do before? So I think there was also kind of an intellectual curiosity there as well. And um, I'm still really interested in a lot of those things. I think I've shifted my perspective a little bit somewhat uh, since when I was sort of maximally interested in it. But I think that uh, I'm very interested in a lot of these ideas because I think they often are the kind of counterpoint to a lot of the cultural values we have that aim towards, um, you know, like you were saying, like the Abrahamic religions, uh, obsession with kind of, you know, doing work and making important, important achievements and, uh, you know, just this whole like Protestant work ethic, this whole idea that's kind of embedded yeah. in our culture. Um, you know, it's very alienate. It's very alien to read about a philosophy whose basic premise is kind of that like non-existence is the goal and that <laughs> like everything you do is bad and you can't really do anything good. And so the whole idea is to try to cease existence is just so alien from the kind of, you know, the feeling that you have in a lot of Western countries where the culture is is kind of obsessed with perpetuating it. You know, it's like it's kind of like an obsession with immortality, whether or not it's, you know, true immortality or whether it's just having a legacy or whether it's making sure your name lives on forever. Like there's this kind of obsession with that to see kind of a society or, or a viewpoint of the world that kind of takes the opposite tact, I think, is, is very interesting. You declared your atheism, or I should a follower of rational spirituality in, in a blog post from 12 years ago. Is that, <laughs> yeah. is that, what's your, so what's your background with, with religion? Did you, did you? So, yeah, you know? no, that's a good, that's a good point because yeah. uh, for me, I think, uh, especially when I think about when you like talk about atheism in uh, America in particular, uh, it tend to like, you tend to imagine this kind of like angry person who feels betrayed like they, yeah. they kind of like they lied to me and now everything is <laughs> false and this kind of thing and uh to me i just don't resonate with that at all because sure. um i grew up in a household where i think like my parents were if not atheist agnostic but i, I never went to church never had any religious kind of upbringing uh, -huh. uh like we are we still did traditional things so like i have my family still did christmas and easter and this kind of stuff but it was kind of stripped of the kind of religious significance that it has for a lot of people sure. which i think is doubly strange like my my wife is um christian and uh, her family is uh, eastern orthodox and so you know when i tell her that we like did christmas and like it wasn't about you know jesus and and this kind of stuff it just it strikes her as being like really bizarre um, and so <laughs> and so for me um, I don't remember ever having a time where I believed in some kind of kind of uh, I would say some sort of anthropomorphic creative being okay and because of that it just to me it like when people talk about it I think the people who are angry they feel kind of hurt but there's a sort of longing for that to have been true um, and so, so for me, I just don't feel that at all. I don't, I don't understand what people feel when they say that. And at the same time, I don't really have the antagonism or hostility to, to religion that I know that some people do that again, some people have this idea of like, oh, it's a negative or corrosive force. And I, I don't feel like that either. To me, I think, um, my, my overall philosophy of the world is kind of, you know, I think, uh, uh, Sean Carroll's book, The Big Picture, I think resonates my philosophy pretty, pretty nicely that like I generally believe in like science and physics and I believe in 
you know, materialism as being kind of the essence of things, but that also that, you know, just saying things are made of, you know, quarks and electrons is not a super useful perspective for most of the practical problems. So sure. if you want to invent like more elaborate concepts, that's totally fine <laughs> because you actually need to do that to survive. And I'm also, you know, even though I wouldn't say that I agree with everything in his book, I'm also a fan of the kind of Yuval Harari idea that human beings sort of our kind of advantage as a species is our ability to create useful myths and that these myths are the things that we actually hold most dear and so their their kind of objective reality is sort of beside the point mm -hmm. so the, the, the classic example of that is something like money which is really just nothing it's just something we agree you know it can be used to exchange for value and so if if money if we stop believing in it it wouldn't have any importance right and so i think that kind of idea that something can be essentially uh, exist within our collective consciousness, but nonetheless be super durable that like, I know exactly how much is in my bank account and like no one can dispute that. The, the fact that it can have this sort of seeming solidity and durability, but also not be uh, like a fundamental entity in the universe, I think is also uh, quite important. So to me, I, I think that um, I would still say I agree with that kind of description of the world that I, I don't really believe in a, you know, a kind of a higher spiritual uh, power or spiritual being. But at the same time, I don't really, I don't really have the same hostility to it, I think that a lot of other people might. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I like your I like your take on this. There's a few. Uh, if, you, if you read Nassim, any of Nassim Taleb stuff, Black Swan, Anti Fragile. Yeah, and, yeah, I've heard some of the stuff. Right, yeah. and uh, you know he's very uh, fond of religion, not because he you know he's uh, I think Orthodox of some sort. Um, mm -hmm. But not you can tell. I don't think he, he kind of believes in like a more pagan thing. Or but he had an interesting quote that was like both atheists and fundamentalists take religion too literally, you know? Uh, so <laughs> I think that could be true, though. I think that could be true. You know, there's a really interesting book called, uh, I think it's called, like, Ritual and Its Limits. I'll have to get that actual title for you. Yeah. But the, the book is essentially arguing that there was a move with the Protestants right. um, to take things very literally and what they call, like, the stance of sincerity. That before that... It wasn't that people thought it, this was false. Like obviously, they thought that you know the religious dogmas were true, but rather there wasn't this real like strong sense to try to take it as literally as possible. That rather a lot of traditions and habits just weren't thoroughly questioned by people. They were just kind of, you know, you were just enacting some kind of ritual reality, and there wasn't a large you know set of debates and kind of worrying over whether or not that was exactly the right way to do things. And I think that this uh, move towards sincerity, um, David Chapman argues that this kind of view of sort of like religious literalism of, of, you know, reading the Bible and the Bible is literally true and it's not just interpreted through the Pope and people in Latin and obviously it's in a language you right. don't even speak, uh, that that inf had a large influence on a lot of Eastern religions as well. And so he even has a kind of thing that modern Zen was created by the American army by saying that essentially Japan 
when seeing kind of the imperial might of Western countries decided we have to modernize and modernizing in this case meant going down kind of a more literalist direction of like understanding texts and making it more rigorously philosophical. Whereas before that, as practiced, it was a lot of traditions and rites and sure. things that maybe aren't the kinds of things we associate with Buddhism here in the West today, um, but were things that were integral to people who actually lived in those societies. Like, you know, your family member died, you have to go pay the right offerings at the Buddhist temple so that they can, you know, this was the way it was actually practiced rather than some sort of abstract philosophical dogma. And so I think that, um, you know, a lot of stuff has been said that it kind of maybe our society is too sincere, that our society kind of neglects the the benefits of having that sort of approach to things where, you know, you're approaching things from the perspective of ritual and it's not having to be literally true and not everything has to be perfectly self-consistent to be useful. You know, it's just my, it's me pontificating here. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not particularly religious, but what I found when doing my own experiment was that like there's some kind there's uh, knowledge accessible by participating in the religion as opposed to just trying to like learn about it and maybe that kind of jives mm-hmm. with your ultra yeah. learning ex- or high, uh, ultra learning experience where yeah you may think it's one way but when you actually do it it's like a totally another thing so if you if you allow yourself to not take it so literally but just participate with an open mind you find that it kind of it kind of works like when i was doing my islam month and praying five times per day i was kind of reading about islam it's like yeah i wanted to be like a good like muslim or or whatever it's not because yeah. i like i want to follow you know follow the rules or like kind of elevate my behavior or whatever but it, you know it's just he felt it he didn't it didn't really make sense even though i didn't intellectually believe it well so the way i kind of flipped the perspective a little bit because yeah. i think there's a lot of sense that um, that a lot of people have uh, maybe that, you know, that those other people, maybe they don't believe the right thing and that you believe what's true in this kind of thing. And I kind of think that we're not really hardwired to believe the truth. I don't think that the truth is the necessarily like the end all be all of what our brains are decided to designed to learn and accept as reality. And I think rather we tend to learn a lot of things based on it being convenient. And so, Um, I forget who said it. They were saying something about how when you, I think it was, this is the uh, Gelman and Mesier effect where he was saying that if you're sort of an expert on a topic or you personally know a certain set of events very well, Uh like let's say you, um, you know, you were there for some situation that happened and then it was later reported on in the news or something. And they were saying, if you've ever had this experience before, you realize how many inaccuracies come out of that process and not just explicit inaccuracies, not even just like, um, you know, this person misreported what actually happened, but maybe the interpretation layer is wrong. That like people were thinking that this was about this, but it was about something else. And so the the Gelman amnesia or Gelman amnesia effect is just essentially that uh, when you have this experience, you are sort of like, oh, you know, this is so bad that they didn't get the facts right or they didn't get the real story right when they were doing it. But yet when you read stories where you have no um, real personal experience or connection to you just take them at face value sure. <laughs> that, that you don't you don't extend that process to realize just how dubious most of the stuff you are are encountering are and I think that <clears throat> in our societies in our lives a lot of the things that we consider to be true and like true at the le- at the level where it would be definitely immoral to say that it's not true are are merely kind of these sort of socially consensus facts that we just sort of take for granted. Um, <clears throat> excuse me 
like I, I like the example from uh, Yuval Harari where he says things like human rights uh, don't actually exist. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing in the world as a human right if you go around and look. That human rights are just an idea that we believe in. And so, but when you talk about it, when people talk about human rights, they definitely do talk about them like they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're not just some sort of social consensus. <coughs> and so I think that can be... Uh, I think that can be a very sort of disconcerting idea to face that, you know, not just the idea that like maybe, you know, your spiritual beliefs, uh, that maybe those don't have the same kind of objective validity, but like many, many of the things that you think are are kind of decided by this sort of process and that they, they don't have necessarily... They don't necessarily have the kind of like ground truth that you, you think that they do or that you imbue them with. Sure. Yeah, I think, especially if you're part of the, I would say, younger millennial secular, like religion is obviously not true, kind <laughs> of. Uh, now I'm a generation. younger millennial. You're flattering me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there yeah. the elder side? I don't know. Middle. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it, I think it, I think it's easy to, if you, especially if you never grew up with it or have a very you know, mm-hmm. very childhood, very minimal childhood experience of it. It's easy to go, yeah, of course it's not true. But I, like you said, I think, you know, things like human rights, are, I think everyone kind of has a, you know, has a religion, whether they know it or not, and it's not closely mm-hmm. examined. And I, and I actually do think a lot of, you know, like secular political movements, you know, start, start looking a lot like religion yeah. uh yeah. if you start you know they have rituals they have rules they have core beliefs um yeah. i think there's a sense of a false sense of progress in terms of our basic humanity that i think yeah. there's in some ways materially we've progressed immensely over the last few hundred years like yeah. it's very obvious that the lives we're living are different from like you know peons in yeah. <laughs> in some feudal kingdom but at the same time i think uh human nature hasn't shifted dramatically in that time period and so um you know the kinds of ideas that you know that like that we still have the same superstitions we still have the same kind of uh you know social consensus beliefs we still have the same sort of basic architecture of our thinking and i think that that's you know that's an important thing to recognize when you're when you're going things and also to realize that people in earlier eras were actually pretty smart about lots of stuff too right i think it's very funny when you read things about you know people hundreds of years ago you know, yes, they were living without a lot of modern technology, but they did actually, you know, think about things and, and come to correct conclusions, at least some of the time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, trying to have that insight, being the original person to have that insight is, you know, like, oh, that's actually really hard, you know? So Yeah, um, absolutely. So I I kind of, I know I'm taking up more of your time here. I, I No, no, this is fun. I, I want to get to a, a couple of things. So like one, like, where do you think, since you've you've obviously you're well read on a wide variety of ancient wisdom topics, and you're also write quite a bit about, you know, personal other personal development philosophies mm-hmm. or methods, or you kind of develop into you know you got you're a lot of modern scientific research. Where mm-hmm. do you think ancient wisdom has a place for? people looking to improve themselves in 
anyway let's say especially if they're not religious or if they're in our demographic yeah. like so i think there's a few and and you've mentioned some of the advantages i think of pursuing uh ancient wisdom and one of them mainly being that uh a lot of uh self-improvement a lot of the stuff that's happening right now is tainted by a kind of um you know sort of self-promotional bias so like i think the worst example of that are kind of like these evangelical churches where you know you give the founders millions mm -hmm. of dollars and they roll around in jets and then like talk about how this is sure, supposedly yeah. for the benefit of the church um you know i think it's probably good that there are some sort of stop gaps on that so i think um having for me i would put it this way i think the more diverse the sources of your knowledge and experience are the more stable they are so if you only understand something from a very narrow tradition and and when i'm saying narrow tradition i also mean like from a narrow very narrow slice of let's say the popular internet wisdom sure i think that you you end up you end up incorporating some of the benefits but also a lot of the weaknesses of that approach and you don't realize it and so this is one of the reasons that i was very interested in kind of eastern philosophy because i see it as being having a kind of different genesis growing up in a different cultural context and indeed largely not being inherited by the west so the, the west we have largely inherited the abrahamic religions and the kind of western culture that has come along with it mm -hmm. and so to a certain extent even if i'm not a practicing christian we're all kind of christians we're all kind of jews we're all sure. kind of muslims because we have that sort of that intellectual firmament is is it's in the water so to speak so mm -hmm. you can't kind of can't grow up in north america and not not have some of that in you whereas if you read like the majima nikaya or something like this and you read about like you know that that the idea that being a homeless wanderer who kind of like just doesn't do anything just begs for food was like the highest ideal you could attain to <laughs> is just so culturally different from where we are right now that i think you know i think that human nature is revealed in all these different cultures from different uh perspectives and it's part of the reason I'm interested in like learning languages and learning about different scientific topics as well, because if you can see that perspective, then you get a better sense, I think, of some of the variety and some of the ways that maybe you've just stumbled on some sort of arbitrary way of thinking about this and that there's another um, another alternative way of thinking about it that's quite different from how you conceptualize it. And so for me, I think the main benefit of learning ancient wisdom is just that it, it evokes a culture that's so different from where we are right now mm -hmm. that even if you don't accept a lot of it, just the sheer alienness of of the culture that it's in, I think can often kind of remind you of the arbitrariness of some of your own beliefs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, you know, it is. I, I read that post where you're kind of assessing ancient wisdom versus modern uh, sources. And, you know, there's the, oh, what is, you know, ethics about owning slaves have to do with today or, you know, it's a random stuff that only, you know, culture a thousand years ago would have to do uh, deal with that. I, I think it's... Well, I mean, it's not a surprise. If you actually read, and I'm not going to single out any religion, sure. but if you actually read a lot of like ancient religious texts, um, there's some shocking stuff in there. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's we're talking about stuff that, you know, if someone even hinted at those things today, they would immediately be, you know, canceled and this kind of thing. And yet these are in kind of foundational texts. And so I think that there's also a lot of value in some of these practices. And, and, and like you mentioned, the, the sort of the idea that a practice or a 
philosophy can endure for thousands of years. I mean, there's plenty of religions and philosophies that didn't make the cut and we know have no record of today. Right. So I think the fact that a philosophy can endure and support a culture and society for thousands or hundreds of years is also evidence that, you know, at some deeper molecular level, it works in a way. Um, you know, I think that there's there's so definitely some merits to that. Sure. Yeah. And I, I also, even though I you know, on my own writing, I make it seem like I'm totally poo-pooing your blog and others like it or, or, or Tim Ferriss. It, it, it's not the case. I, I've we'll just start a feud that'll get all the likes and clicks. That's what we got to yes, do. Yes, fake yeah. internet war. Uh, fake, fake internet hate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's more that I think in certain areas, like I think the broader meaningfulness questions and mm-hmm. what it means to be a human in you know a variety of situations. I actually think it's the ancient stuff is is better even if the i think that it survives because the stuff they say about human yeah. nature is is true and you know it's not you can still get that in in modern personal development sources but it's like well it was it's not uh, it might be better for it's easier to read like the newer stuff and that's totally fine but uh it's it's not original in that sense and then you know it's it's time tested with the group but i also think the if you were to like just be like i need a life philosophy like I'm going to become Catholic. Like I think having the infrastructure of the Catholic church is useful rather than, you know, the Facebook group of, and I'm going to rag on Tim <laughs> Ferriss or whatever. Like if that's not, his, if that's around oh, man, Tim Ferriss getting so much hate. I, this, yeah, uh, I, I, I would love to, to I would love to interview him and, and you know, I think yeah, it'd be yeah. fun, but uh, I, I think Tim Ferriss would probably agree with a lot of what you're saying, sure. which I think would, would probably make you sad. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> well, this is going to be, it's going to be an hour. It's only five minutes. Um, yeah. 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 So it's, uh, you know, if his Facebook group survives in a thousand years, sure. But like, if like if you have limited time, mm-hmm. like you know, and that's the type of thing you're going for, go for the go for the older or more kind of modern. You know, uh, someone modern. You're definitely. Writer, I think yeah. you're definitely right about something that there's yeah. a kind of depth to uh, a lot of older traditions and philosophies than modern ones. That I think like modern ones, modern sort of self improvement movements often tend to seem shallower they tend to appeal more to kind of our vanity and our sort of impulses as opposed to you know wanting to be good people and service and this kind of thing and so definitely like for me reading um you know early texts the kind of the preoccupation with kind of goodness as a virtue uh is you know largely absent in our kind of highly material self-improvement culture that the self-improvement culture is about improving yourself you know that that if if charity or if being a good person or morality is given some kind of it talking points it's just sort of like a little fluff at the end but it's really about you know making more money or you know having a hotter girlfriend or whatever the whatever the flavor the advice is at the moment yeah real noble goals like that one um and so I think you're probably right that there's definitely something to be appreciated uh, from those contexts. And I think uh, there's something probably enduring about it, too, that it, it strips away some of that. For that. Yeah, absolutely. So the conceit of this show that I was trying to figure out with mm. Cal, he actually gave me the idea for doing the podcast. But I was talking to him and I was telling him my problem, right? So in January, so I had my own little uh, government contracting business. I was doing some data analysis, but basically I was, as an independent contractor, have like a full-time job for the most part, have like an employee or two. But I was sitting at a mm-hmm. desk with the client and then got really bored with it. And at the end of 
uh, January of this year, I was like, you know, I'm going to focus on growing the business. And I built this up in my head, like had this whole productivity plan, like I'm going to get up at whatever, 5 a.m. every day. I'm going to learn Python. Then I'm going to focus on business development, yeah. workout, bullshit, all, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like, And okay, so the only thing I successfully have done for the past, you know, 10 months now is like, I got in pretty good shape. Like, you know, I'm running, oh, I'm running a lot, but that's, I, I got the sense that I'm working out to like avoid, I'm distracting myself with <laughs> exercise. Cause like, I really yeah. don't want to do the other stuff. And, mm. and you know, I feel like it's, I'm stuck in this like psychological rut. I am going back to a full-time project soon, which I think is healthier, but like, what do you, I, I don't think I'm alone in, like I achieved like some not like retire success or whatever but it's not like I'm poor I have a nice apartment I'm now married uh things are it's pretty good things are fine I had a lot yeah. I had unlimited free time essentially I didn't do anything but like it's just kind of, I, I get the sense there's a lot of people who are maybe kind of at this point in their lives like you know 30s have some kind of mm-hmm. thing going who uh, don't really know what to do so I, I know I just uh, kind of shit on uh, asking advice, uh, modern advice people for like broad life mm. questions. But I am curious since yeah. you, you, you know, we're both 31 now. You've, I think you're a little, if I'm measuring it in terms of like who's ahead or whatever, you've, you're a little bit <laughs> ahead, but like I think you've, you know, you've achieved some level of, of success and your life seems to be going pretty well from what I can, what I can tell. So like what advice do you have for me? Should I take up a, an ultra learning project? Should I, you know, go to church? Um, what should you I know, do? <laughs> both. No, okay. I, I think, you know, yeah, since you asked, um, I don't know. I think that, uh, so it's funny you talk about the kind of like, I'm going to wake up at 5am and do this kind of thing. And I think that the problem is that we tend to view things like that as being steady states and life is never a steady state. So I've done that many, many, many times. I've had many, many times the I'm going to, you know, wake up and be productive. And it does. I do it for a while. And then, you know, life shifts and I get the work done that I wanted to do. And then I, you know, okay, well, now I'm going to, now I'm going to play video games for like two weeks or something like that. And so I think kind of my approach to things uh, has been always to try to figure out what's the what's the thing that I should be kind of trying to take advantage of in my life right now? And I don't think that that's, and there's a, there's like a static answer to that question. I think rather it's something that like, it depends on your current life situation. So if we're talking about, you know, like I I can think about when I was in university, a big part of that was like, okay, well, uh, I'm going to, you know, join the student council so I can have that experience. I'm going to, you know, go on exchange so I can have that experience. And then, you know, now that, I'm an adult and I'm like living here and I'm, you know, married and this kind of thing, the kind of like growing my business direction and doing this kind of thing, you know, working on these sorts of longer term career goals makes a little bit more sense. And so I I tend to view life more in this kind of series of sequential projects rather than trying to reach some sort of end steady state that will, you know, be good for all time. And I think that's a little bit more sustainable too, because I don't think you can perpetually sustain any kind of motivation or feeling about things. And so it's often a lot better to think in terms of 
okay, well, obviously you want to have your, you know, you want to be exercising regularly your whole life. You want to be doing a lot of other good habits your whole life. So I don't want to discount the habitual approach, but I kind of like doing things where, okay, this is what's on the agenda for this year. And I'm excited about it. And I can kind of get my hands dirty and work on it. And then right about the time that I'm getting tired with that, I can do something new with my life. And, and so that I think just respects the, the dynamism of all of that. And so I think, there's going to be moments where you're like, well, I got lots of free time. I don't know what to do. And I think those moments are also good and that you should use those to kind of explore and, and let yourself sort of do things that you wouldn't have otherwise done because there's also going to be plenty of times where you're so overwhelmed with work, you can't think of anything else. And you're just like, oh God, I can't wait till this project is over. And then when it's over, you're bored again. And so I think you just kind of got to respect the like what stage you're in right now and just take advantage of it. Look, I basically explored the entire netflix catalog for the most part uh, there you go yeah time. but yeah uh, it's it's interesting you mentioned it, it sounds very taoist very wu way a little bit uh <laughs> not trying to force i have it. a lot more way in my life than i i would probably like there's uh, it's a lot more way than wu way for myself but i try to aim towards it or I, yeah. I try a little bit so like so in your case, you're kind of, okay, so you mentioned while you're in, you know, college, the early stages, joint student mm-hmm. council, trying to figure out career stuff. More recently, like what, so what has changed for you maybe in the past, like three years? So now you have the book and I think you're, you mentioned your wife, you're, you're, you're now married. Like what can you in your mind separate stages maybe three years ago versus now? Well, yeah, big, big changes. So like three years ago, um, I was still dating my wife. We weren't married yet. Um, We were still living in different cities and I was kind of going back and forth. And I remember being anxious about that. Um, And I remember, you know, I was working on, uh, I was working on sort of starting the process of writing the book. Uh, which was a project that caused me a lot of anxiety just about, you know, the writing the book was something that I was kind of worried about a lot because I felt like um, the stakes were really high and I felt like, you know, I might screw it up. And and I was, you know, I had this idea that like I really wanted to do it well, but I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to do it well and, and this kind of thing. And so, you know, now that project is kind of winding down now, like the, the book has been published and I mean, it's kind of done what it's going to do. And I'm having these conversations about it, but I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of already happened. And now I'm sort of gearing up for new projects and new stages in my life. I won't say too much on this public podcast about some of the things that are upcoming, just because I prefer to announce them uh, when they're happening. I've, I've learned from experience not to, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I've learned from experience not to announce things prematurely just because sometimes most moments in life change and then people are like well we're you going to do this and it's like ooh, okay kind of jump the gun on that one but i i would say that you know i'm i'm already starting to think of you know what are the new things that are going to be coming up but again it's going to be defining this chunk of time that's going to be maybe like a year to three years um of you know a certain phase and i'm going to try to figure out what my priorities are whether they're going to be work whether they're going to be you know related to my relationships whether they're going to be related to things like travel and exploration or you know or learning or things like that and um and then i'm going to try to work on some projects i'll get excited about them and you know probably a bit anxious about them too and and work on them and finish them and then i'll i'll you know figure out where i go next from there 
Man, you sound like you really got a good hold of everything. I, I hope that's just. I really want you to do the cry in public thing on. Uh, on oh podcast. yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Get me, get me on the podcast the next time when but, I'm in the middle of me, uh, writing a book and you can hear me <laughs> freak out about uh, it. Tell me about your relationship with your parents. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's great. Well, Scott, I this is really this is really fun. I enjoyed. Yeah, it was. I, I enjoyed it was. hearing your perspective. I think you have a lot yeah. more to. Uh, teach me about I'm, I'm, I'm gonna wait I'm gonna wait for the subsequent post to vote how how I misled you and ruined your life uh, <laughs> I tried ultra learning project. and I'm not happier and it's Scott's just... an ultra douche yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for that has anyone actually ever done that that'd be a that's kind of a funny troll that move. you know what I've I've just I've just claimed it right now so it would be lame if you did it <laughs> there's actually a guy I, I can't remember where I found it but he had like a website like I hate scottyoung.com so I've definitely ruined at least one person uh... Uh, maybe maybe ruined their day i don't know whether i ruined their life but um but enough for them to make a website about how much they dislike me so there you go i'm gonna you know? interview that guy next <laughs> oh and... yeah that'll be that'll be episode number yeah. two <laughs> why why you hate scott no they'll, they'll point out all my flaws all the all the self-contradictions amongst a thousand articles i've written and all the times i don't live up to uh, my ideal you know and then you can interview me and i'll cry on the next episode uh, so that'll be great turn into a jerry springer type thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> well scott thanks so much for uh yeah coming on the show um hopefully we can do a uh follow-up at some point and you know yeah congratulations on the uh on the book i know this is your, this is your oh, first thank you first public like real published book yeah Not- yeah i'm hoping that the next one will involve less uh sexual psychological uh <laughs> angst as i as i went through uh, three years of working no, i on think it, but, the, yeah. i think the whole like pained writer thing is there for a reason it's to produce i mean it worked for it worked for hemingway right yeah and so don't fast forward all the way to the end um yeah yeah i've got to i'm gonna put my my chips in yeah. for being a, a tortured artist right all right well hey uh enjoy the rest of your uh weekend and you know hopefully we'll talk again soon yeah sure thanks all right thanks so much